90.7 WTCC. Good morning. Welcome to the Spoken Word. I'm your host, Bishop Talbert Swan II. First up on the microphone is our illustrious State Senator Eric Lesser calling in with our State House update. Good morning, Senator. All right. I thought we had him on the line. I think, yeah, we got him on the line now. Good morning, Senator. Hey, Bishop, good morning. How are you? I'm great. How you doing? Good, good. Uh, you know, bad things in the news, but at least uh, at least we're together. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, man. I, and I'm going to talk a lot about that, of course, and we'll continue to be talking about that. Um, but give us an update. What's happening at the State House? So, yeah, on, on more kind of prosaic matters, uh, so last time we talked, we were in the midst of a kind of wait and see on the budget. And we have good news, uh, which is the budget came back uh, fully funded, no vetoes. And it's the first time really anyone can remember that happening. So uh, thank you and kudos to Governor Baker for that. Um, that means, you know, the PVT item we had is going to come in fully funded. I know we've been talking about that on a couple of shows. Um, a lot of good items are going to be in there for Springfield and the greater Springfield area. So um, overall, a really a really good budget. So I, I feel good about it. Of course, there's always more we, we need and want to do. But um, considering what we were potentially faced with, I, I think it was a, a good outcome. So that at least... <laughs> Uh, that at least is positive. And uh, we had a, a big set of hearings last week on this RMV situation. I know people have probably followed the deaths that have happened. Um, some real some real mismanagement going on at the RMV where they weren't properly tracking people's license suspensions. We, we learned a lot at a set of hearings last week about just how deep that went. Uh, so we're in the process of, um, of, of getting to the bottom of that. And uh, the legislature went on in August, goes on August recess. Uh, we'll be back after, right after Labor Day, so it'll be pretty quiet at the state house uh, for the month of August. So legislators no, no. are basically back in their districts. Now, this just kind of reminded me of something um, when you were talking about the RMV. Um, uh, a question I have for you: yes. Ma- Massachusetts uh, insurance. Yes. Um, um, I've got a I've got a son who. Uh, just turn is going to turn twenty five years old, um, buying a car, et cetera. Um, first Lucky time, you. first time <laughs> financing, et cetera. Yeah. And then he gets insurance quotes, and the insurance quotes are three times the the, the price tag of of what his car payments are going to be. Now contrast that, and I understand that they go by a formula of um, the crime rates, et cetera, et cetera. But literally, if he were to purchase uh, insurance, say, in Pelham, um, as opposed to Springfield, it would literally, in Springfield, it's literally about four times the amount of insurance for that young man because he lives in Springfield. What's up with that? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, it's one that, frankly, I, I don't totally understand because they don't have a lot. They don't give us a lot of transparency on how those formulas are put together. Um, they, you know, what the insurance companies say to us is that it's a mix of sort of different sort of actuarial formulas. The bottom line is is that number one, it's antiquated because, quite frankly, you know, property theft 
everywhere has gone way down, including in Springfield, and a lot of those formulas are are, are left over from a, a different period. Uh, second, there's a lot of bias issues, and there, we see this across the insurance industry, and it has to be addressed. You know, you see uh, gender bias, for example, in different rates for life insurance or for health insurance for men versus women. Uh, there's there's bias issues that come into play also when you're using geography uh, or zip code as a proxy. Yeah, it looks uh, like it looks well. like the insurance companies are redlining certain areas like right. the banks used to do. Right. Right. So, you know, that's a, that's an area where I think we need to have a lot more transparency. And you mentioned car insurance, which is one of the most uh, extreme examples, but it's also prevalent really in homeowners insurance, certainly life insurance. You know, we see uh, certain indicate, you know, certain areas of life insurance where you see these chronic examples of bias. Uh, and um, and it's, it's a big problem. And, you know, the insurance companies are very tight-lipped about how they put those formulas together. Uh, so it's an area where I think we do need to do a lot more work. I, I know one place it did come up, for example, is the surcharges for um, the hands-free driving bill. So I know that that's been a, a debate, the hands-free driving bill here in Massachusetts for a while. I personally support it, uh, the, um, the hands-free bill, but one issue that does need to be resolved and that the legislature is working its way through is how we handle, for example, disparate stops and whether that creates another predicate for pullovers. We need to make sure that that's addressed or that we're collecting the right data and that there's transparency in the data so that we can enforce the laws and enforce the civil rights rules. So it's a good point. And, um, you know, there's a lot more that has to get looked into with it. Absolutely. Uh, what else should we be aware of? So, you know, the, the hands-free issue is still out. You know, that's, that was a big, high-profile bill that had been getting a lot of attention. Um, you know, I think it's an important bill. Uh, we, we all, I mean, we're all guilty of it. I certainly have been known to occasionally glance at my phone while driving my car, and it's dangerous. Uh, so we want to make sure that the laws are updated there. Uh, but there are some serious concerns around uh, whether that creates, again, more incidents of pullovers and whether those stops are going to be uh, um, disproportionate in certain ways. So that that's a, a sensitive and ongoing conversation. So people should definitely keep an eye on that. Um, some good news again with uh, with the earmarks when we come back in the fall. You know, I was a little disappointed that we weren't able to get an education bill done this year, but there is good news that there'll be $25 million more million coming to the Springfield Public Schools than there were last year um, as a really down payment on a much bigger education bill that we're going to try to complete in the fall. Uh, so that's uh, that's very good news. And then people should really be on the lookout for a big state-level health care bill. Uh, we know prescription drugs, for example, are a big issue. Massachusetts led the way well over a decade ago on what became Obamacare. At the time, it was Romney Care. I love, I love calling it that. But, um, uh, but uh, we need to now may go even farther, and we need to make sure we're including prescription drug costs in that and that we're giving everybody access to health care. So that's coming up, you know, hopefully in the fall. So uh, it'll be a lot, a lot going on, um, you know, a lot to focus on. I had a, a very important meeting that Helen Colton Harris called uh, about the um, – growing uh, death rates around opioids in several of our gateway cities, but in particular in Springfield. I think we've talked about this, Bishop, before on previous shows, but this is really something that we need people focused on because uh, there's a narrative building around the state that the opioid crisis is, quote, under control. Um, and part of the issue here is the statewide numbers 
are, are showing uh, slight decreases in the death rate. Uh, there's been a 4% decrease according to DPH numbers from last year. But in Springfield um, and in Holyoke, uh, and in Chicopee, we've seen pretty dramatic increases. And in Springfield, in fact, the death rate last year doubled. So this is a very serious issue. Uh, the Western Mass delegation is really united in, in shining, shining light on it. But we need to make sure that the narrative around drug treatment, rehabilitation, and um, the surging of support around the substance abuse crisis touches all of our communities, uh, acknowledges the differences in our communities, and makes sure that the response is equitable. And it's something I've, I know you and I have talked about this before, but it's something that is concerning and is ongoing. So that's definitely something for people to keep an eye on as we go into the summer and early fall. All right. Give us one more time, as you do every uh, month, uh, how to get in contact with your office if folks are interested in um yeah. Uh, speaking with you or getting involved in something you're doing or giving you some ideas or expressing their concerns or whatever or it might be. <laughs> yeah, we take we take all comments, positive or, or constructive. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so uh, so the, the office number here in the district is 413-526-6501. Again, 526-6501 for people who are listening who are local. Um, if you want to talk to our statehouse office, that's 617-722-722. One two nine one again six one seven seven two two one two nine one. People can also reach out to me directly on Twitter at Eric Lesser. Uh, they can reach out on Instagram at Eric Lesser MA on Facebook at Eric Lesser MA, uh, or they can shoot me an old-fashioned email at Eric Lesser at MASenate.gov. All right, always a pleasure talking to you, Senator. We'll All see right, you next Bishop. time. Bye-bye. Take care. Four one three seven three six two seven eight one. No vetoes in the budget. Shout out to Senator Lesser, but also shout out to our other area legislators, um, um, State Representative Bud L. Williams, and also um, State Senator uh, Jim Welch um, for looking out for uh, their constituents and ensuring that certain monies got into the budget to take care of uh, their districts. So shout out to each one of our Western Mass legislators, Jose Tassano, and the list goes on um, for looking out for Western Mass and uh, ensuring that we got some of the things that we needed in um, this state budget. 413-736-2781. So 46 minus 1 on Sunday, baselessly, baselessly, I'm having trouble talking, um, <clears throat> made this just extemporaneous claim um, that mental illness was the reason for the two mass shootings. He didn't get that from the FBI. He didn't get that from any um, preliminary investigation. He didn't get that from any recorded history of the mental state of the shooters. He just got that because they were white. And, of course, if they're white, it has to be mental illness. Um, he determined it was the cause of the fatal shooting in El Paso and in Dayton, Ohio, uh, that left 29 people dead. Uh, he floated that his administration has done more than any other administration in history. 
you know, on mental health. Of course, he's always claiming his administration has done more than anybody else in history because that's what he does. He's a braggadocious blowhard. Um, um, and much more uh, has to be done to prevent the future shootings, but we're going to take care of it. How the hell are you going to take care of it, Trump? There's been 216 days in the year 2019, and there's been 251 mass shootings. How are you taking care of it? You know, um, but it's mental illness. You know, if you look at both of these issues, it's 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 it, they're mentally ill. Um, but once again, authorities have found no indication either of them were mentally ill. Um, they say that the motives of Connor Betts, the one who shot up Dayton, Ohio, um, have not been discovered. What we do know is is six out of the nine victims were black. That we do know. What we do know about Patrick Cusius, the white supremacist mass murderer in El Paso, is the majority of his victims were Latino. And he left behind a manifesto uh, complaining about the Hispanic invasion of Texas. Some of the same language used by his idol, Donald Trump. Um. So he had anti-immigration in his manifesto against this so-called Hispanic invasion. Um, and so they're investigating that one as a hate crime. Um, Trump goes on to say he's talking, he's talked to attorney general, FBI director. Uh, and then this is what gets me. He makes a statement that says hate has no place in our country and we're going to take care of it. How the hamburger does the most hateful man in the country who incites hatred on a daily basis, part his hateful lips to say hate, has no place in our country. And of course, everybody from Beto O'Rourke and his other 2020 opponents um, are all jumping down his throat on it, and they should, because Trump has over and over again downplayed white nationalism, white supremacist violence, as like it was just some isolated incidents um, that is not a big deal. Now, here's the thing. His own FBI director testified before Congress on the 23rd of July and said that white supremacy is the number one terrorist problem in America. That's what his own FBI director said while he continues to try to downplay it. But look, look at his language at his rallies. Um, before last year's midterm, um, when he was running for office, and right now that he's campaigning, he, com- he com- completely pushes the envelope in terms of racist hatred. And he continues to warn 
his followers, his base, and feed them that red meat that America is under attack by immigrants heading for the border. There's caravans marching. There's an invasion coming. He continues to use not dog whistles, but bullhorns about Chicago and Baltimore and these black infested, crime infested cities uh, where black people live. This is the typical language of the president of the United States of America. And so it's no wonder that a 21-year-old white man who walks into a Walmart and just begins to randomly murder people says he was inspired by Donald Trump. It's no wonder that the murderer in New Zealand said they was inspired by Candace Owens and, of course, by Donald Trump. Uh, you know, it ought to bother you. It would bother me if anyone performed a hateful act of violence and took another life in my name and attached it to something I said or did to inspire them to act that way. But it doesn't seem to bother this president. He just brushes it off and shifts the blame off on the media. He was tweeting uh, earlier this morning that it w it's the media's fault. Um, but here's my question. Here's my question. <clears throat> and here's where the media is complicit. How come it is that whenever a mass shooter is black, brown, or Muslim, they are automatically labeled as a terrorist without any preliminary investigation, without any background information, without any evidence. They're automatically labeled as a terrorist or a suspected terrorist. And the media is guilty. But then when the shooters are white, the conversation is always about them being a lone wolf, them acting alone. This is an isolated incident. It's always about uh, the state of mental health. The conversation always goes. They was talking about it just this week. Republicans and stuff talking about uh, we need to call the video game industry into accountability. No. So y'all don't have no problem with there being 400 million guns floating around in America. But you want to call the video game industry into accountability, not the gun industry. This is the insanity of the conversation when white boys lose their minds and start shooting up and murdering people. White politicians, white people, white activists bend over backwards to protect them, to humanize them. 
to change the narrative. Because, see, if you're black, brown, or Muslim, inherently there's something sick about you in the first place. And so there's this broader, dastardly scheme as to why you're shooting folks. But when it's our sons and daughters, it's American society failing them. And it's the mental health industry failing them. See, society is willing to humanize white shooters. You remember after the New York City bike path attack when a man drove a rented pickup truck into cyclists um, during that bike path uh, along the Hudson River? Um, 29-year-old Muslim from Uzbekistan was immediately labeled as a terrorist. The media immediately called him a suspected terrorist and a terrorist, and Donald Trump immediately tweeted he should get the death penalty in all capital letters had not even been um um arraigned or anything and already he was saying death penalty when has he called for the death penalty for one white supremacist terrorist i wait when when the gentleman gentleman he's not a gentleman when the white supremacist ran his car into a crowd in charlottesville killing heather Heyer, did donald trump call for the death penalty for him no but he'll call for the death penalty for this muslim in new york he'll call for the death penalty to five innocent black teenagers falsely accused of rape, but he will never call for the death penalty for a white supremacist. Why is that? After the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting, Omar Mateen was immediately labeled as a terrorist, despite the FBI having found no ties to ISIS or any terrorist organization. Now, on the other hand, Whenever the public encounters Stephen Paddock, who murders 58 people and shoots 500 others at a concert in Las Vegas, they don't label him as a terrorist. I mean, this man rents a hotel room over where the concert is going to be and from his window starts murdering people. But he never got labeled as a terrorist. Dylan Roof went into a historically black church, African Methodist Episcopal Church, Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Church started by uh, uh, slave revolt leader Denmark Vesey and others purposely picked that church because of its historical significance went to their Bible study, sat with them through Bible study, then murdered nine people, including the pastor of the church. And they never called Dylan Roof a terrorist. Matter of fact, they arrested him and took him to Burger King to have a bite to eat before taking him to jail. They never called James Egan Holmes, the theater shooter, a terrorist. See, white supremacist society in America is quick to make room for a rationalization of white violence. It becomes customary 
for them to search for answers in places that they aren't warranted. All while images of toxic white masculinity become normalized. And, 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 but then you want to talk about toxic black masculinity as something that society needs to deal with. I mean, it is absolutely amazing how disparate the treatment is depending on the race and the religion of the individual accused of doing the shooting. And and you, you got to imagine how frustrating this has to be for the countless people of color, black and brown people, who have spent years being characterized in a blanket fashion. Black folks who have spent years being characterized as thugs and criminals and and then Muslims and Arabs and, and folk who have spent years being characterized as terrorists. You got to imagine what goes on in the minds of we who have been characterized by American society as the other while we watch white offenders being offered nuanced and sympathetic journalistic coverage. So that's where Fox and ABC and NBC and CNN and and all of the other media outlets are accountable because you help push this narrative that somehow white murderers who remind you of your sons and your grandsons and your cousins and your husbands and your lovers deserve a sympathetic, nuanced coverage as opposed to black, brown, and Muslim people. In the aftermath of these massacres, White people continuously fail to look at the bigger challenge facing them. Their collective inability to examine racial undertones in a larger sociopolitical context. They allow the culture of toxic white masculinity to, to evade responsibility over and over and over again. And you got to wonder, what's this all about? All you have to do in order to really understand what's going on, look at what happened with the Texas El Paso shooter. Went into a Walmart, murdered 20 people, arrested alive. Look at John Crawford. Went into a Walmart to purchase a BB gun. Cops got called on him while he was holding a BB gun being sold by the store, murdered by police. Look at the Texas El Paso shooter. Look at the pictures of him being arrested. Two cops putting him in handcuffs. No big deal. He just murdered 20 people and was armed with an AK-47. By contrast, look at Eric Garner, accused of selling loose cigarettes. 
six cops choke him to death. That right there is example number 2,459,369,487,206 of white supremacy, white privilege, and white male patriarchy in America. I got to move out of your way. Listen, if you're looking for a place to worship, check us out at the Spring of Hope Church of God in Christ, 35 Alden Street, Springfield, Massachusetts, the Brick Church right there at Six Corners. Still in our summer hours, our power begins at 11 a.m. If you come after 1215, you're going to miss it. So be there. We'll be doing that up through September. Um, Also want to remind you of the upcoming uh, NAACP Freedom Fund banquet happening on September 12th, um, 2019, 6 p.m. Shea Joseph Banquet Hall. You want to save that date. You want to get your ticket. Uh, It's going to be a blast, and you want to be there. I got to get out your way. Coming up next is mid-morning jazz and great black music. Come here, granddaughter. Come one more time and say bye to the people. I got my partner in crime, my oldest grandbaby. Say bye. Okay. She's she's in here with me. She's leaving with me. I don't know if she's going to have breakfast with me. But until the next time I talk to you, you talk to me. Always remember, God loves you, and so do I. Sean Bell, say his name. Sean Bell, say his name. Sean Bell wants to say his name. 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 Won't you say his name? Say his name.